Well, good morning uh, to you. My name's Bland. If you are new, uh, welcome. So glad to have you with us. Um, if you're regular, welcome as well. I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's not just new people that I'm glad to see. Um, but if you are new and haven't had a chance to speak to you yet, uh, I'll be at the connections table right across the hall after the uh, service is over. Would love to, to say hi. Uh, if you if you are new, we are in a series through the book of Genesis, and we have not been not gotten very far along. So you can still uh, catch up pretty easily. Um, the the synopsis is God created a good world. Uh, that good world did not stay good for long. <laughs> Human beings sinned and rebelled against God. Last week, uh, we saw that uh, really come into play in one particular instance uh, in the, the sons of Adam and Eve, uh, Cain, uh, killing his brother Abel. Um, and even in that, how God uh, provided his care and provision uh, for them. Uh, today, we look at a genealogy, uh, beginning with the Adam and Eve's uh, son, Seth. So I'm going to be reading from the Jerusalem phone book. Uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Um, but uh, I, know, I know everyone loves genealogies. But you know, it's funny, Western uh, folks look at genealogies very different than uh, ancient Jewish people would, or even modern Jewish people would. Uh, we have things like Ancestry.com and 23andMe to figure out who, you know, who our uh, ancestors are, who the people, uh, who we descended from, and then where they lived, and things like, like that. And we do that with a lot of intellectual uh, curiosity. We, we want to gather facts and information. The one uh, part that maybe uh, in, in the subculture of American uh, West that, that maybe looks at that a little more um, like Jewish people would be black Americans who often will look back and see uh, just a few generations back their, their ancestors were, were slaves and there is this uh, collective sense of identity related to uh, the historical slavery in America and so there's a, um, a sense of identity related to that. We, most, Western, most Westerners uh, outside of that tradition do not think of their, their uh, genealogy in that way. But uh, gene genealogy, when it comes to uh, how Jewish, ancient Jewish people looked at it, was much more than simply just uh, interesting factoids about who you're related to, right? I know um, I, I found some interesting stuff out about my family going back, and you probably have that in your family as well. Um, but it, it's not just about factoids, and it's not simply just about an identity. Uh, Jewish people looked at uh, ancestry as destiny, they looked at ancestry as destiny. So you looked back in the lineage of who you were in, and that often determined the direction and trajectory of your family and where you were headed. Um, and identity, uh, the Jewish identity was not so much about the past, even though that was very important. It shaped about how you looked at life going forward. This uh, Genesis as a whole, next to this Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were all written down in the uh, post uh, post-exile period of, of Jews. Jews had been, well, not exiled, but were in slavery in Egypt. They were not in the land that God had promised to Abraham. We'll get to Abraham in Genesis 12, but uh, they were in, in Egypt. They went there for good reasons to start with, but then over generations ended up in slavery and were there for 400 years. And of course, Moses, you know the story, Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness and God begins to give them um, these books of what became known as the law, the Pentateuch, or the book of Moses. Um, it's referred to that throughout scripture. And this is an important uh, aspect of that. Chapter 5 lays out the genealogies uh, from Seth all the way up through Noah. And, and what we see here is not just some information, but, uh, but an identity and a trajectory for a people. 
Uh, honestly, reading it can feel really boring. I totally get that. Um, if you ever read Lord of the Rings, anybody read that? The first hundred pages. Uh, I, I actually, Mike told me this from his. He actually, uh, you, you want to nerd out with Lord of the Rings? Mike had a had a uh, Tolkien class at Boston College. I don't. It sounds awesome. I want to sign up for that. Um, but he said that Tolkien actually wrote the first hundred pages. Uh, it's it's basically a map a written description of a map, which you can imagine how exciting that is, uh, but he wrote it to weed out people who just wanted a quick story. Um, but what he does in doing that, in describe, describing this map, he lays the foundation and uh, everything that comes after it fits into this map and this story. It's, it's essential to what is happening. And that's the case with, um, with Genesis 5. God has given us a map, but of people. Um, and the generations from Adam all the way to Noah and the flood. And what you'll hear from me later is that these actually show up through the rest of Scripture. These, these names and this genealogy is repeated throughout God's Word. So this is the first place it appears. So what we see from Genesis 5 is this map, but it, um, you see God's people beginning to be fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it. And we also see as human beings multiply that the effects of sin begin to take place. Root. So I'm going to read uh, Genesis 5 and um, encourage you to follow along in, in your own copy of God's Word or maybe your journal uh, Bible. And then when I'm done, I'll say, This is the Word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond by saying, Thanks be to God. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Finally, an easy name to pronounce, right? <clears throat> Jared. <laughs> Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enosh, uh, Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. <clears throat> Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. This is a different Lamech from last week's. 
Methuselah lived after he lived Lamech, uh, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground <clears throat> that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were, not, were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you look back over your family history, you no doubt uh, see bright spots and dark spots. Hopefully you're one of the bright ones, but uh, maybe not, or maybe you're like me and there are parts in your life that were not so bright. Um, in the Mason family, uh, generationally, I grew up in this southeast area of Virginia, and like generationally, as far back as we know, the Masons <clears throat> lived in that area. So when you when you grow up in an area where generationally your family, extended family, lived, um, you kind of end up meeting cousins periodically. Um, <laughs> you never knew you had. Like you, you end up tracing back through like your grandmother, or great grandmother, or something. Um, and and I had a complex family. Uh, it, it was uh, it was it was fun um, at times. I remember uh, reading the newspaper one year, or my dad was showing me the local paper one year. One of my cousins was valedictorian of her class, and, and she was celebrating that. And I remember looking over into the police report section of that same paper and seeing that one of my other cousins had burned down a competitor's fishing boat while he was drunk. Um, and so uh, my family, and I bet your family has it too. I'm not the only one. Uh, families are complex because people are complex, right? And, and what we get here is a glimpse into this crazy family tree uh, of God, of God's people. And these patriarchs, which, uh, you know, the early fathers, um, they're referred to as patriarchs, um, uh, remind us, this, this story of them and this uh, genealogy of them remind us of a few things. One, why we are here. It also reminds us of our identity and then reminds us of who we are or what we're really like uh, underneath it all. So let's, talk, let's walk through these. First, the, the geneal genealogy here is meant to remind us of why we are here. <clears throat> the, the genealogy of Seth introduced in, in uh, the first few verses, uh, lays out the, is a retrospect pointing back to Adam being the father, right? And then pointing back to the fact that Adam was created in the image of God. And, and when uh, someone who is made in the image of God has a child, that child is made in the image of God. So it passed down from generation to generation. And it reminded Hebrew people that while sin had fractured the world, um, and marred the image of God, human beings were still made in the image of God. Uh, that did not cease when Adam and Eve had to leave the garden uh, or when they rebelled against God. It was still there. Now, a quick reminder of what being made in the image of God is. It means uh, image bearers, as image bearers, they had the capacity to hear God's word and respond to it. Uh, no other creature has that ability except angels. Secondly, as image bearers, they, charged the, they were charged to rule the earth as God's vice regent. So human beings uh, were little image bearers of God meant to bear God's image in ruling in our spheres, in our particular spheres and places. And then thirdly, uh, the image of God in Adam and then now in Seth pointed to the possibility of an intimate spiritual relationship as 
children of God. This means, this reminds us that all human beings uh, are created in the image of God and have dignity and worth that is inherent to our essence, not something we earn or gain or achieve. It is given to us in the very fabric of our being. Verse 2 reminds us that God not only made us in his image, but he made us with intentionality as male and female. Now, I realize that there are places that uh, the Bible looks at these things through a cultural lens at times, but you have to understand how radically um, pro-feminist this was. In that ancient world, there were no cultures that saw women on, on equal dignity, value, and worth with men. There were none. They were, women were seen as somehow inferior. But here in this passage, it says that women were made, female, were made in the image of God along with men. Therefore, there's an equality and a beauty here that God was establishing. At times, and I would argue often, uh, in church history and in the biblical history, uh, the, the people get it wrong and how to understand that. But it is God alone who elevates in his word uh, women to this level of dignity and equality with men. And together, men and women were to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. We called that, the uh, theologians called that the cultural mandate. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But that cultural mandate to go across the face of the earth. And that's exactly what we did. Verse 2, it says, male and female created them, and he blessed them. He blessed them in that they multiplied. And multiplied, they did. There were a lot of people showing up quickly. Uh, notice in this list that Cain and Abel do not show up. Uh, at this point, Abel is dead. Cain uh, has, has, uh, is no longer with God's people, uh, with the descendants of Seth. He had withdrawn, right, and had left and was unrepentant. Now, the question we ask is, why is all this important? Why, why is God unpacking this? Because if you go back to Genesis 3.15, God had promised that one day a descendant of Eve's would crush the head of the serpent, would destroy the power of sin and death. And, and with, with the birth of Cain and Abel, and maybe the idea was that he was there, clearly was not there, right? Uh, one's dead, the other one killed him. So got, not, the, not the, the serpent crusher there. But Seth comes along and there's an introduction, the idea of a new hope, right? A new hope that's, that's being established. And human beings are beginning to spread across uh, the world through, this, um, through God's call to be fruitful and multiply. And I would argue, and I want us to understand this today, there is a common grace cultural mandate. As human beings, as, as, as followers of Jesus, we, we embrace this cultural mandate under the banner of Jesus and his kingdom, right? But as human beings, we are inherently given the cultural mandate as well, regardless of whether you believe in God. This is why I argue people still build buildings. You don't have to be a Christian to go, this should be, there should be a beautiful building here, or do art because of, uh, because of a calling of the glory of God. No, the cultural mandate is hardwired into us. You can enjoy the benefits of marriage. You can enjoy the benefits of having children. You can enjoy the benefits of creating something, making something, doing something for the good of other human beings and for the good of the world and not do it for the glory of God. 
So there's a common grace cultural mandate that's beginning to shape out, shake out in humanity. We saw this last week, if you remember, uh, things like the beginning of agriculture and art and music and things like that that uh, Tyler shared. Those things were beginning to be established. The cultural mandate was beginning to press out. Not everyone was doing it for God's glory, but it was happening nonetheless as an essential uh, part of, of, um, of God's call. But the, the real point of this text is that God is at work, not human beings. And it's so important, uh, one, one theologian says, history is an essential part of theology. Looking at history to see what God is doing in, uh, is so important. But if you look at, um, and, and in the moment, it's hard to see, right? I don't know if you've, you've experienced that in your lifetime where something in the moment, it's really hard to see how God is at work. But then later on, you look in the rearview mirror and you begin to see, oh, God was orchestrating that. God was kind of steering this. And, uh, and so what we're doing as we look back and the purpose of looking back in this history is to understand how God is at work. I love the verse, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose, right? Great scripture. Maybe you've got it on a coffee mug somewhere or a t-shirt or maybe it's your screensaver or something. I don't know. It gets, I've seen it all over. It gets thrown out so much. I'll be honest with you, for many years, I just kind of stopped using it um, because it just felt like, it felt like a Band-Aid you threw on every tough circumstance, right? Um, but here's a, here's a question. Why would God need to say this? to us. He, would, he put this in his scripture, Romans eight twenty eight, to remind us of something very important, that in the moment when we can't see the purpose, we can't make sense of something, we don't understand how God is at work, we can trust God that he is. That's why it's there. And that's one of the reasons Genesis 5 is here, to remind us that despite Cain and Abel, the, the, the last scene closed with Cain and Abel, you know, killing each other, and now you've got Seth, um, and he's not the promised one, but God is still at work. He is purposeful. One of the stories we see later in Genesis that fills this out really well is Joseph, right? If you know the story of Joseph, uh, Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob, son of Jacob, uh, Joseph. Uh, Joseph was uh, the youngest of his brothers and um, was, um, God had his hand on him in favor, and, but his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery. He ends up in slavery in Egypt, right? Under, under bondage in uh, Egypt and then ends up in prison in Egypt for many, many, many years. This was not a, like we read it in, in like five minutes, but we're talking about years, many years of Joseph's life. And yet after that, God exalted him to the right hand of Pharaoh. And then we find at the end of the book of Genesis, it, uh, on the lips of Joseph, he says to his brothers, you guys, you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's the reminder that when, when uh, things don't make sense, God is always at work. So we need to be reminded of who we are and that God is and why we're here and that God is always at work in it. The second reminder here is <clears throat> the purpose of this genealogy is to remind the people of their identity. This was written by Moses for the Hebrew people, people connecting them in who had been in exile in, in Egypt. Now, uh, 
led out of Egypt, but they had never been a people. They, they couldn't remember. There was no one who, who remembered being free. There was no one who remembered the land of Israel there was, or the land that God had promised to Abraham. There was no one who had that identity. There was a loose idea of, of, of Jehovah God, and they would cry out to him and ask him to deliver them. Um, and, and God heard the callings of his people. Uh, but they needed to be reminded of who they were. God brought them out, reminded them, hey, this is your ethnic identity. This is your, your rooted in the creation itself. Now, genealogies like this one are called telescoping genealogies. And that means what they do is they, they sort of focus in on, on one individual, but that individual is actually like part of something much bigger. And so it's like focusing in on one, uh, one star in the sky, even though there's tons of stars around it or connected with it. You can think of it as a branch. It's focusing on one part of that branch, but not focusing on the entire branch and all of the different uh, parts that are there. The focus for Jewish people was always on uh, the importance, uh, the important people, not the individual. The important people were a very individualistic culture. So if you're writing a genealogy, what do you do? You include everybody, right? Some of you are, are maybe have done that, and you, you know there's always that one part of the tree you can't find, you know, and you're in it, and you stay up at night, you know, you can't sleep because you're like, I don't know where that goes, I don't know who my who my ancestors were on that side, you know, in that direction, um, because you feel like it should be complete. Every name should be on there. That's not how Jewish people thought. Jewish people thought the important people should be on there. The focus was on the lineage, not the individual. There were countless individuals who were born to um, these uh, patriarchs during their lifetime. And this, the purpose of it all is, to, is, a, is a redemptive arc that would ultimately point to the Messiah, the serpent crusher, right? From Genesis 3.15, that one day a descendant of Eve would come and crush the head of the serpent, defeating the power of sin and death once and for all. Seth isn't the one, neither are any of these, but they are playing a role. Many genealogies in, in the Bible, including this one, break down into segments of seven or ten. Uh, seven is the number of, of uh, completion based on creation, right? We've already looked at that. Uh, ten is a, is a number of fullness. Uh, and so what you see throughout Scripture when you're reading is you'll see these numbers show up. Jesus sent out 70 disciples to go preach the gospel. That was the idea of a complete, uh, the message was going out of the fullness of the kingdom of God. But the essential purpose of this genealogy is it connects Adam to Noah. And guess how many generations that is? Ten. Yes. So smart. I know you were counting. Um, ten, ten generations leading up to the birth of Noah. Um, now, I, I realize there are lots of questions about this, um, lots of gaps. What is it about these ages and things like that? I totally get that. I don't know if, I mean, you probably have some, somebody in your family that lived to be 100 or close to it, and you're like, well, I thought that was old. You know, Adam lived to be 930. That's, that's kind of really old. Um, 
And so that's a legitimate question. Uh, there's been lots of theories about this, about um, trying to make sense of these uh, years where they portions of a year. If you break them down into like seasons or something, you end up with uh, some of these patriarchs having kids at like nine years old, um, which does not seem right. Um, and so it can't be like pure se- uh, seasons or uh, phases of the moon or things like that. There is an emphasis here, uh, at least the way they read it, that, that these are actual uh, real years. One option to consider this is that, um, well, throughout the whole thing, the, there's a reminder that each one of them says they lived so long, they fathered children, and they died, right? Every one of them, except Enoch, uh, end with, and they died. And it's a reminder that death is ruling. Death is now reigning in human life. I don't want us to miss that because that's the emphasis here. Um, but one option to consider is that after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the idea that is the idea that they're, they're, they had eternal bodies, eternal physical bodies, and that those bodies did not instantly fully corrupt, um, that there was a process of degradation of the broken world that we live in, that uh, the physical world and the physical bodies did not immediately become as corrupt as they would, they began a process. And uh, a simple analogy might be for this is your refrigerator. So you lose power and your refrigerator, uh, what's in there might last for like two or three days, right? Like if you keep it shut, things will stay cold for a little while. Now, if you put something new in the refrigerator on day four, (laughs) what's going to happen to it? It's not going to last any longer than it would if you left it out because the effects of the refrigerator are gone. Um, and, and so there's this idea that, that the human DNA and corruption of our physical bodies took time. That's one, uh, one option uh, that is uh, thrown out. Uh, death was beginning to reign, though, in human life. And Enoch, uh, but Enoch interrupts this pattern. He is the, uh, incidentally, the seventh patriarch. So remember, completion, uh, picture of completion. He is the seventh patriarch. And each patriarch's death is stated once. But what this author does in verses 22 and 24 is state twice that Enoch walked with God and that he escaped death. And this idea that he escaped death was tied to his walking with God. We see this phrase, walking with God, show up later to describe Noah and even of uh, Abraham and Isaac in later chapters of Genesis. So Enoch is a picture of one who walked with God. And so what you could see here is what the intention of the author is, is that, that Enoch walking with God is walking with life. That, that walking with God was equal to walking with life or walking in life. Uh, and and uh, he was trying to emphasize that for us. There's only two characters um, in all of the Bible that, um, that the scriptures say God never let them taste physical death. He just took them home. Uh, Enoch was one, and does anybody know the other one? Elijah. Ooh, get some Bible scholars in here today. Um, so Elijah was taken up as well in front of the, uh, his protege, Elisha. Um, but as we look at these, look at chapter five and look at these uh, names, it's very purposeful that Enoch is meant to point to Jesus. He's, that he has an incorruptible life, right? Scripture uses that language in the New Testament that Jesus, uh, Jesus' life was incorruptible. Death couldn't hold him, right? And so then walking with Jesus was walking with life. But this passage reminds us of a couple things before we move to our final point, and that is, it reminds us that death is inevitable. 
Our bodies wear out, right? Listen, I, I, I never stop to be fascinated by how, um, how in the West we spend so much of our time not focusing on that and acting like it's not real and doing everything we can to kind of deny it or, or um, you know, push death off. Um, I'm not suggesting that we don't do that uh, or that we, we run towards death, but it's interesting how we don't acknowledge it. But I think when you acknowledge death, what you do is allow yourself to be able to think about legacy, think about impact, to think about how your life matters. And I'll tell you the truth, ever since, um, uh, since I became a grandfather, I have started thinking about that a lot more. Um, for those of you that are new, I, uh, I became a grandpa this summer. Um, it, was, it was pretty amazing. I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, but his wife, Teresa, is so young looking. She can't be a grandmother, right? Um, <laughs> and she is. But, uh, but, but being a grandfather, I think about like, what, kind of, what kind of things do I want her to remember? What kind of legacy do I want to leave for her as a person? And, but it's not just me, like as grandfathers, we, we influence each other, we impact each other. The longer we walk with each other in life, the more there's an opportunity for that long-term legacy or impact. And I think that's important to remind ourselves that what do we want our legacy to be? The second thing that reminds me of the, in this passage is that there are no unimportant people. If, I mean, there are names here that literally have no detail about. They live, they had kids, and they died. You know, like, but they still made it into scripture. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> and get your name in scripture. But, but the, the point is, they played their role. They played their part. I learned a long time ago, I think, having pastored in a smaller town in Kentucky of, of about 4,000 people um, and burying literally, I'm not being facetious, I did 100 funerals in that church. Um, it, my, uh, my secretary told me that before I left, that I had done 100 funerals. So I had walked through a lot of death with people, with families. And I remember meeting people that like hardly ever had ever left that town, other than go on like vacation or something, but who left an unbelievable legacy. Their faith in Jesus, their love for their neighbors, love for their family was a model. And I go like, their lives really matter. We value people uh, who, are, who are famous, right? We value people who, who have a, an Instagram feed and, and who, uh, you know, who have glamorous lives and glamorous friends and glamorous clothes. And, but I'm like, I look at this and I go, God cares really about the individual. He doesn't care about how big your, your, your sphere of influence is. That's not a bad thing. God can use that if he's given you a big sphere. But but that's not the measure of, who, of, your, of, of uh, your importance in God's eyes. See, God sees the small ways you try to serve others. God sees the humble steps you take to be available to him. God sees you praying for your friends and your coworkers when no one else sees you. You see, God sees that, and that's what makes a life that matters. And so we need to remember our identity here. And then finally, God reminds us of who we are, uh, or really kind of what we are like in that matter. And I wanted to, I saved it, but Genesis 6, 1 through 8, because that's the end of our passage for today. I was charged with preaching chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, 8. We'll get to Noah, next week's Noah's flood, so get ready for that. Um, 6, 1, follow along. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they chose as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of man came into the daughters of man, uh, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Not a very flattering picture of of humanity. <laughs> God's like, man, they sin a lot. That makes me really sad. <laughs> like, basically, it's a modern translation. Uh, like, God's heart is grieving, right? He's, he's grieving over the ugly uh, effects of sin. Death was reigning and ruling, um, but human beings now were, were trying to um, live life apart from God. A couple of questions that are interpretive hairballs that get thrown into this text that I want to answer really quickly. Uh, one of the questions that gets asked here is, "What are who are the sons of God? Right? Is that a biker gang? Um, you know, what, what were what were they? Um, <laughs> sons of God? It's a it's a really good uh, good question to ask. There's really three options here. One is that they were possibly angels who transcended down into human existence and fathered kids. That's one approach. Uh, the other one is that they were tyrant kings. They were, they were rulers, but they were uh, evil rulers. And then uh, thirdly, the idea that this is Seth's line, since in other places, Adam is referred to as a son of God. Uh, and so then Adam, uh, Adam's son would also be a son of God. I don't think it's hugely important where you settle on that, but um, you can study that more, I'm sure. The Nephilim are another fun group. <laughs> If they were angels, um, they could be giant, the giant offsprings, uh, like Goliath, um, like unusually large people. Um, more likely, though, there, there's a belief that these were just simply genetically superior people. They were just a pool of people that, uh, I guess, sort of had a protected gene pool. <laughs> and they, they were tall, they were strong, they were fast, they, maybe they were beautiful, um, you know, like the Netherlands or something. Um, and, <laughs> no, I just... <laughs> But like people that, you know, they just, you could tell they were different. And we, you can think of maybe as pro athletes. Um, we would look at pro athletes today and be kind of be in awe of them as a, as a whole. Um, most of them are, are quite impressive. Uh, one year um, we used to have, uh, back when we were at our old school, we had, we had a Patriots player that used to come some while he was at camp. And uh, he was 6'8 and 320 pounds. And he was not fat. I just remember uh, Fletcher, Pastor Fletcher in Somerville and I just standing there next to him and we were like, wow, we both feel like we're about 10 years old, <laughs> like standing next to this giant man. Um, but imagine just a lot of people who were his size, you'd begin to make stories up about them, right? Um, and, and, but part of the problem was that people began to look at these characters through a different lens and um, began to make up stories about them. One, one thing you can be for sure is that they knew when this was written, the, the people who received this, the Jewish people, aren't like, who are the Nephilim? Right? Who are these people? It'd be similar to us if we uh, wrote something down and referred to the Backstreet Boys. And then, uh, you know, a thousand years from now, another culture, no one's ever has any record of, of the Backstreet Boys. And they're like, Backstreet Boys. 
hmm, you know. <laughs> we would instantly know who they are and know what the reference is. Clearly, we believe that that, that, that was the purpose here. But these were um, these mighty men began to be heroes and great stories began to be told about them and they were bigger and, 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 and uh, became renowned. Now, one, part of the problem here is they became renowned, but they weren't renowned for their character. They were renowned for their conquests, right? And their, uh, their, their prowl. Um, similar today to how we would talk about the, uh, we'd honor uh, people for beauty like the Kardashians or uh, accomplishments that people have rather than character. So like Michael Jordan or Tom Brady. Is that too soon? <laughs> um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't. <laughs> but they're legends, right? These are, these are legend, legendary people. And so they began to attach storylines to them and who they were. Uh, verse five, it says, God saw the wickedness of humanity. He saw it. Do you remember... Do you remember another place already in Genesis where God saw something? It says God saw creation, right? And it was good. Now God sees man and it's evil. Mankind is living in evil continually. He actually says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a serious indictment, right? I mean, that's... When it comes down to it, that's us. That's your problem and my problem. We, the problem, the root of this, and God kind of cuts past it, is you think your sin and, and I think my sin is about something I do out here. Oh, I got to stop doing that thing and I got to start doing that thing, right? That's how, that's sin. But, but God cuts past it all. Why? Because he can see where sin originates in the human heart. And Jesus reiterated this in his own ministry, Right? He didn't say all the evils outside. He said all the evil that we do comes from within. It is, rises up in our hearts. The worst thing about having this intention of our thoughts and our, uh, of our hearts being evil is that we cannot get it out of ourselves because it isn't what we do. It's who we are. I think there's a parallel. If there, if there was a corruption of, of human uh, DNA and corruption of us genetically, then there's a corruption of us spiritually as well. A corruption that was introduced into the system. And God's response, look at verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I love what um, K.A. Matthew says in his commentary on this. He says, God's response of grief over the making of humanity, however, is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man has made of himself. So when it says God is regretting, there's just there's a grief or a sorrow similar to um, if if you have a friend who uh, is choosing to do something that's self destructive and you say I'm 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 grieved that you're doing that I'm sorry that you're doing that right you're not responsible you didn't make them do that but you feel grief and sorrow over it and here's why the grief is so hard because God loves us. He grieves over your sin because he loves you, because the capacity to love also brings a capacity to grieve when the person you love is doing things that's hurting themselves. If you don't believe me, wait till you're a parent, right? 
Parents, you, you know that feeling. When you see your child doing something that's not good for them, it creates such a deep grief in your heart. That's only a tiny picture of the grief God feels for us when we choose to rebel against him. But this section, as sad as it is, and as, as real of a testimony as it is, is who we are as broken people, it ends with a hopeful note. Verse 8, just look at it one more time. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. God's eyes were fixed on Noah, and God gave Noah grace. God gave Noah favor. We'll look at it next week in the flood story, but this is a picture of Jesus. Instead of building a, an, a wooden ark to deliver people right through the flood of God's wrath, we have a Savior who hung on a wooden cross to deliver God's people from God's wrath. And instead of the, 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 the waters drowning uh, people, uh, we now have baptism as a symbol of dying in the water with Christ, being dead to sin and then rising in new life, coming out of the ark. Luke, uh, this, this is such an encouraging reminder for us. Luke chapter 3 contains the genealogy of Jesus. And listen to, the, listen to the last few verses. Verse 36 of Luke 3. The son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What the author of Luke was doing was taking Jesus straight back through Genesis 5 and tying him to Adam. He is the new and better Adam. He is the son of Adam who would crush the serpent's head. He is the son of Adam who would deliver humanity from the power of sin and death. That's why this story matters. Because as we look back to who Jesus is, we also are looking forward to, or we're looking back at Jesus' lineage, we're also looking forward to what he did and what he's going to do. Today, as you consider this, that Jesus is the son of Adam and Eve who conquered the serpent and the power of death, he did that for you and for me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the invitation is, is not just simply a one-time thing, though it's important if you've never made that step to, to take that step of repentance and belief. But even every day, we are called, last week's sermon, John 15, we're called to abide, right? We're called to abide in Jesus. That means reminding ourselves, rooting ourselves, remembering who he is and what he's done for us every day. And this is a call. We're going to sing a song in just a moment called Resurrender. And it's an invitation to resurrender your heart again, afresh and anew, if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, for the first time to experience that today. During that song, we'll take communion, uh, but we have to take it out in the hallway. So if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know where you stand today. You're walking by faith in him. Uh, take some moments to reflect, pray, repent. And then during this uh, next song, you can slip out, go out the side door here, and then make your way outside, take communion. We can't have food or drink in here. Um, and then uh, make your way in the back there. If you're not a Christian or you don't know where you stand with him today, listen, I, I'm excited you're here. I know it's a huge step to even come hang out with a bunch of people that do. Um, but we're glad you're here. And don't believe you're here by mistake. Uh, we'd ask you to not take communion, um, but you can either walk with your friends around and just not take, or you can stay where you are uh, during this next song. 
Um, I'll be in the back the rest of the service. Would love to pray with you. Uh, if there's anything we can do for you, you can also use a connection card uh, and put that in the offering basket later. Let's go ahead and stand. Um, I'm going to pray and we can respond together. God, we thank you that when we rebelled against you, you did not hand us over to the power of sin and death forever. That while death might have reigned in our mortal bodies, you have always had the plan to give life through your son, Jesus, all the way back to the patriarch, Enoch, who walked with you and was the first to experience eternal resurrection without even facing physical death. God, that picture of eternal life is what we need. We need to experience that even today in a new way and be reminded that you have, have not forsaken us that even in the moments of darkness where we don't see what you're doing, you are always at work and you see us. There is not one person in this room that is unimportant to you. Not one person that you have not sent your son Jesus for. Thank you for that invitation today. As we take the bread, we take the cup, we remember your body broken for us, Jesus. Your blood poured out for us. We take it with joy. We take it in anticipation of the day we will see you face to face again. In your name we pray.